Section 14 of Mother Earth, Volume 1, Number 4, June 1906. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mother Earth, Number 4 Aim and Tactics of the Trade Union Movement by Max Baginski Trade unionism represents to the working man the most natural form of association with his fellow brother. This medium became a necessity to him when he was confronted by modern industrialism and the power of capitalism. It dawned on him that the individual producer had not a shadow of a chance with the owner of the means of production, who, together with the economic power, enjoyed the protection of the state with its various weapons of warfare and coercion. In the face of such a giant master, all the appeals of the working man to the love of justice and common humanity went up in smoke. The beginning of modern industry found the producer in abject slavery and without the understanding of an organized form of resistance. Exploitation reigned supreme, ever seeking to sap the last drop of strength of its victims. No mercy for the common man, nor any consideration shown for his life, his health, growth, and development. Capitalism's only aim was the accumulation of profits, of wealth and power, and to this Moloch everything else was ruthlessly sacrificed. This spirit of accumulation did not admit of the right of the masses to think, feel, or demand. It merely considered them a class of coolies, specially created, as it were, for their master's use. This notion is still in vogue today, and if the conditions of the workers at this moment are somewhat better, somewhat more endurable, it is not thanks to the milk of human kindness of the money power. Whatsoever the working men have achieved in the way of better human conditions, a higher standard of living, or a partial recognition of their rights, they have wrenched from their enemies through a hard and bitter struggle that required great endurance, tremendous courage, and many sacrifices. The tendency to treat the people as a herd of sheep, the purpose of which is to serve as food for parasites, is still very strong, but this tendency no longer goes unchallenged. It is being met with tremendous opposition. Increased social knowledge and revolutionary ideas have taught the working men to unite their efforts against those who have been comfortably seated on their backs for centuries past. The first unskilled attempt on the part of the people to gain a clear conception of their position brought out blind hatred against the technical methods of exploitation instead of hatred against the latter. In England, for instance, the working men considered machinery their deadly foe to be gotten rid of by all means. The simple axiom that machinery, factories, mines, land, together with every other means of production, if only in the hands of the entire community, would serve for the comfort and happiness of all, instead of being a curse, was a book of seven seals for the people in those days. And even at this late hour this simple truth is entertained by a comparative few, though more than one decade of socialistic and anarchistic enlightenment has passed. The first trade unionistic attempts have met with the same ferocious persecution that anarchism is being met with today. Even as today capital avails itself of the strongest weapons of government in its attack upon labor, 
the authorities were not slow in passing laws against trade unionism, and every effort for organization was at that time considered high treason. Organizers and all those who participated in strikes were considered aids and abettors of crime and conspiracy, punishable with long years of imprisonment and in many cases even with death. At the behest of money, the state sent human bloodhounds on the trail of the man who in any way was suspected in participating in the trade union movement. The most villainous and brutal methods were employed to counteract the growth and success of labor organizations. The powers that be recognized the great force that is contained in organized labor as the means of the regeneration of society much quicker than the working men themselves. They felt this force hanging like a Damocles sword over their heads, which danger made them dread the future, and nothing was left undone to nip this force in the bud. The fundamental principle of trade unionism is of a revolutionary character, and, as such, it never was and never can be a mere palliative for the adjustment of labor to capital. Hence, it must aim at the social and economic reconstruction of society. Many labor leaders in this country who consider their duty performed when they sit themselves at the table of wealth and authority, trying to bring about peace and harmony between capital and labor, might greatly profit by the history of trade unionism and the various economic struggles it has fought. Only ignorance can account for the birth of such superficial stuff on the labor question as the book of John Mitchell that has been launched upon the market through loud and vulgar advertisement. Nothing could have disproved the fitness of Mr. Mitchell for a labor leader so drastically as this book. As already stated, the violent attempt to kill trade unionism, or its organizations, have proven futile. The swelling tide of the labor movement could not be stopped. The social and economic problem brought to light by modern industry demanded a hearing, produced various theories, and an extensive literature on the subject a literature that spoke with a tongue of fire of the awful existence of the oppressed millions, their trials, their tribulations, the uncertainty, the dangers surrounding them. It spoke of the terrible results of their conditions, of the lives crippled, of the hopes marred, a literature that demanded to know why it is that those who toil are condemned to want and poverty, while those who never produced were living in affluence and extravagance. Well-meaning people have even attempted to prove that capital and labor are twins, and that, in order to maintain their common interests, they ought to live in harmony. Or, that if sister labor had agreements against its big brother, it ought to be settled in a calm and peaceful way. Meanwhile, the dear sister was fleeced and bled by brother capital, and every time the abused and slaved and outraged creature would turn to her brother for justice, the dear fellow would whip the rebellious child into submission. Along with the forcible subjection of organized labor, the minds of the people were confused and blurred by the sugar-coated promises of politicians who assured them that the trade unions ought to be organized by the law, and that all labor quarrels ought to be settled by political and legal means. Indeed, legislatures even discussed a few labor protective laws that either never saw the light of day, or, if really enacted, were set aside or overridden by the possessing class as an obstacle to profit-making. Every government, no matter what political basis it rests upon, acts in unison with wealth, and therefore it never passed any legislation in behalf of the producing element of the country that would seriously benefit the great bulk of the people, or in any way aim at any change of wage-slaving or economic subjugation. 
Every step of improvement the working men have made is due solely to their own economic efforts and not to any legal or political aid ever given them, and through their own endeavors only can ever come the reconstruction of the economic and social conditions of society. Just as little as the working man can expect from legislative methods can they gain from trade unionistic efforts that attempt to better economic conditions along the basic lines of the present industrial system. The cardinal fault of the trade union movement of this country lies in the fact that its hopes and ideals rest upon the present social status. These ideals ever rotate in the same circle and therefore cannot bear intellectual and material fruit. Condemned to pasture in the lean meadows of capitalistic economy, trade unionism drags on a miserable existence, satisfied with the crumbs that fall from the heavily laden tables of their lordly masters. True social science has amply proved the futility of a reconciliation between the two opposing forces. The existence of the one force representing possession, wealth, and power inevitably has a paralyzing effect upon its opposing force, labor. Trade unionistic tactics of today unfortunately still travel the path marked out for labor by the powers that be, where the majority of the labor leaders waste the time paid for by their organizations in listening to or discussing with capitalists sweet nothings in the form of arbitration or reconciliation, and are apparently unaware of the fundamental difference between the body they represent and the powers they bow to. And thus it happens that labor organizations are being brutally attacked, that the militia and soldiers are maiming their brothers in the various strike regions while the leaders are being dined and wined. The American Federation of Labor is lobbying in Washington, begging for legal protection, and in return venal justice sends Winchester rifles and drunken militiamen into the disturbed labor districts. Recently, the American Federation of Labor made an alleged radical step in deciding to put up labor candidates for Congress, an old and threadbare political move, thereby sacrificing whatever honest men and clear heads they may have in their ranks. Such tactics are not worth a single drop of sweat of the working men, since they are not only contradictory to the basic principles of trade unionism, but even useless and impractical. Pity for and indignation against the workers fill one's soul at the spectacle of the ridiculous strike methods so often employed and that as often frustrate the possible success of every large labor war. Or is it not laughable, if it were not so deadly serious, that the producers publicly discuss for months in advance where and when they might strike and therewith give the enemy a chance to prepare his means of combat? For months, the papers of the money power bring long interviews with labor leaders, giving detailed descriptions of the ways and means of the proposed strikes or the results of negotiations with this or that mine magnate. The more often these negotiations are reported, the more glory to the so-called leaders, for the more often their names appear in the papers, the more reasonable the utterances of these gentlemen, which means that they are neither fish nor flesh, neither warm nor cold, the surer they grow of the sympathy of the most reactionary element in the country or of an invitation to the White House to join the chief magistrate at dinner. Labor leaders of such caliber fail to consider that every strike is a labor event upon the success or failure of which thousands of lives depend. Rather do they see in it an opportunity to push their own insignificant personalities into prominence. Instead of leading their organized hosts to victory, they disclose their superficiality and their zeal not to injure their reputation for respectability. The working men, be it victory or defeat, they must take up the reins of every strike themselves. 
As it is, they play the dupes of the shrewd attorneys on both sides, unaware of the price the trickery and cunning of these men cost them. As I said before, the unions negotiate strikes for days and weeks and months beforehand, even allowing their men to work overtime in order to produce all the commodities to continue business while the strike is going on. The printers, for instance, worked late into the night on magazines that were being got ready four months in advance, and the miners who discussed the strike so long until every remnant of enthusiasm was gone. What wonder, then, that strikes fail, as long as the employer is in a position to say, strike if you will, I do not need you, I can fill my orders, I know that hunger will drive you back into the mine and factory, I can wait. There is no hope for the success of the strike. Such have been the results of the legal trade union methods. The history of the labor struggle of this country shows an incident that warrants the hope for an energetic, revolutionary trade union agitation. That is the eight-hour movement of 1886, which culminated in the death of five labor leaders. That movement contained the true element of the proletarian and revolutionary spirit, the lack of which makes organized labor of today a ball in the hands of selfish aspirants, know-nothings, and politicians. That which specifically characterized the event of 1886 as a revolutionary factor was the fact that the eight-hour workday could never be accomplished through lobbying with politicians, but through the direct and economic weapon, the general strike. The desire to demonstrate the efficacy of this weapon gave birth to the idea of celebrating the 1st of May as an appropriate day for Labour's festival. On that day, the working men were to give the first practical demonstration of the power of the general strike as an at least one-day protest against oppression and tyranny, and which day were gradually to become the means for the final overthrow of economic and social dependence. One may suggest that the tragedy of the 11th of November of 1887 has stamped the general strike as a futile method, but this is not true. The battle of liberation cannot be put a stop to by the brutality and rascality of the ruling powers. The vicious anger and the wild hatred that strangled our brothers in Chicago are the safest guarantee that their activity struck a potentially fatal blow to government and capital. Neither Mr. Mitchell nor Mr. Gompers run the risk of dying upon the gallows of sacred capitalistic justicia. Her ladyship is not at all as blind as some suppose her to be. On the contrary, she has a very keen eye for all that may prove beneficial or dangerous to the society that draws its subsistence from the lives' blood of its people. She has quite made up her mind that the gentlemen in the ranks of labor today lead the people about in a circle and never will urge them out into the open towards liberation to be continued. End of section 14. Recording by Stephen Harvey.